I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13. After a five-week uh, break from the Gospel of Mark, we make our re-entry in one of the most difficult chapters of the Bible. And I'm gonna, we're going to go ahead and begin by honor, honoring the Lord's Word by, by reading it, the entire chapter, Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. God's holy word says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars... And rumors of wars do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness about them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there He is. Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken." 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the Word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would give us understanding into Your Word. Father, we pray that You would help us to see what is true and to draw out the the encouragement, the instruction, the counsel the exhortation that we need in order to be faithful Christians. Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts and our minds in a, in a special way this morning, that You would strengthen us in our walk with You. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. For a long time, I anticipated that the two most difficult passages to preach from the Gospel of Mark would be Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, which we looked at a number of weeks ago, is Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage, marriage, divorce and remarriage, and I thought that that would be difficult, not because it's difficult to understand, but because it's so countercultural. And, and therefore very humbling and sobering to deal honestly with what Jesus says. As for Mark chapter 13, the reason uh, this chapter is difficult is, is much more complicated. Even if someone believes that Mark chapter 13 is straightforward and easy to understand, the fact remains that there are wildly divergent opinions on how to rightly interpret Mark chapter 13 among faithful Christians. And I emphasize among faithful Christians, among devoted believers who cherish Jesus, treasure His words, and love one another, apparently plausible interpretations of the chapter are all over the place. Of course, Believers can be quite opinionated and passionate about the views that they hold, and this makes it doubly important to keep the big picture in clear view. The big picture is 
is so important. Our unity as believers, our unity as a church family, is not dependent on our detailed perspectives of the end times. The big picture is clear and glorious. The details and proposed timelines are less clear, often debatable, and sometimes downright dangerous, as when someone resorts to date-setting. We confess the clear and glorious big picture in the Nicene Creed. I'm going to read it. Listen to it. You're probably familiar with it. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day He rose again, according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, Catholic, little c Catholic, like universal or global. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. All believers should be able to be unified in that confession. Our risen and ascended King Jesus shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. And when Jesus appears in glory, those of us who belong to Jesus will appear in glory with Him. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead. The bodies of those who belong to Jesus will be raised up and glorified with redeemed and immortal bodies. We will enjoy life in the world to come in our Lord's everlasting kingdom. And there we will delight in unhindered fellowship with the triune God and with one another forever and ever. Can you imagine the blessedness of large-hearted love flowing from the King to and through His people and back again without even a hint of impurity or selfishness? Can you imagine a bountiful banquet in which every participant is humble and holy and happy all the way down to the depths of the heart and the festivities never end and every relationship is healed and there is no danger to be found anywhere? Those who trust and love and obey Jesus in this world will inherit the fullness of eternal life in the world to come. But those who persist in unbelief and unlove and disobedience will be condemned to unending punishment. That's the big picture. It's clear, glorious, weighty. Live in the big picture. Do, do your best not to get lost in 
detailed theories about what may or may not happen before the dawn of eternity. Focus your attention on what is certain. Keep the main thing the main thing. Stay faithful in the everyday. And don't divide or get contentious about secondary or peripheral or debatable matters. Among faithful believers, I'm going to use some big words here just just to make a point. Don't, Don't sweat them. Among faithful believers, there are amillennialists, postmillennialists, premillennialists. The premillennialists subdivide into dispensational premillennialists and historic premillennialists. Big words that are shorthand for a whole range of views about the end times. And it's not my intention to define or explain these terms today, but I want you to have an awareness that there are significant differences among faithful believers on how to think about things like the end of history, the rapture, the millennium, the relationship between Israel and the church, and the future of Israel. And the way that a person puts all these things together influences the way that you read particular passages such as Mark chapter 13. One of the safest views to hold, by the way, is one that my wife likes to profess, and that is pan-millennialism. A pan-millennialist says, I don't know about the details, but I'm confident that it will all pan out in the end. (laughs) Keep a big-picture perspective and believe that in God's faithful hand, everything will pan out in God's time and in God's way. That is a healthy, that's a healthy outlook. And if, but if, if you're teaching God's Word, regardless of what view you hold, you must make an honest effort to explain particular passages. All of God's words, including the difficult-to-understand words, are intended to build us up and strengthen us. So just, just listen to this. I admit that this, this, this sermon is a little bit more uh, weighty and scholarly than most sermons, but just bear with me because it's really important to navigate this. Uh, one author, George R. Beasley Murray, refers to the notorious difficulty and complexity of the task of interpreting the chapter, Mark chapter 13. Walter Wessel and Mark Strauss say, here is the longest connected discourse in Mark's gospel. It is also the most difficult. William Lane puts it this way, in the gospel of Mark, there is no passage more problematic than the prophetic discourse on the destruction of the temple. And James Edwards claims that Mark 13 is one of the most perplexing chapters in the Bible to understand for readers and interpreters alike. A big part of the disagreement, in fact, is whether this passage is about the end times at all. Virtually everyone agrees that verses 1 and 2, and probably extending to verses 3 and 4, is about the destruction of the temple, the temple that was rebuilt by Herod the Great, and that was then standing in the city of Jerusalem in the early decades of the first century. But after verse 4, all bets are off. Some people believe that the entire rest of the chapter, verses 5 to 37, is about the second coming of Christ at the end of the age. Other people believe that the entire passage, 
verses 1 to 37, or at least most of the passage, verses 1 to 31, is about the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in the year 70 A.D. Now, just think about that. Some faithful believers think and teach that this passage is almost entirely about something that has not yet happened, and other faithful believers think and teach that this passage is about something that happened, or most of the passage is about something that happened 1,950 years ago. This illustrates for us one of the challenges in discussion about the end times. Sometimes faithful believers will disagree about whether a particular passage is even relevant to the discussion. If you assume that Mark 13 is about the end times, then it will shape your view of the end times, but if you don't think it's about the end times, then it won't. So far, I've only given you the two polar opposite views of the chapter. Some think it's primarily about the end times. Some think it's primarily about what happened with the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century. But there are actually a number of viewpoints between those two poles. Some people believe that verses 1 to 23 are about the destruction of Jerusalem. Verses 24 to 27 are about the second coming. Verses 28 to 31 are about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then verses 32 to 37 are about the second coming. Someone else believes that verses 1 to 13 are about the destruction of Jerusalem. Verses 14 to 27 are about the second coming. Verses 28 to 31 are about the destruction of Jerusalem. And verses 32 to 37 are about the second coming. And some people don't, don't even, aren't even comfortable pinning down a particular referent for every verse, and, and they'll just say something like, there's two things in view here, overlapping. There's, there's an element in which the, the concern is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the first century, and somehow it relates to Jesus coming back at the end of time, and, and they're related somehow, but it's hard to be perfectly precise. Now, it's my earnest desire that faithful believers in our Lord Jesus Christ be gracious and warm-hearted to one another regardless of the particular views they hold on the end times, including whether or not a passage like Mark 13 is even about the end times. We must learn to walk in humility toward other believers, assuming the best about their mindset and motivation. We should test the content of the teaching that is presented to us. Don't assume that everything you hear from your favorite teacher or everything you read in your favorite study Bible or everything that you hear in this pulpit, don't assume that everything is correct. Know your Bible. Challenge assumptions, theirs and yours. Have lively discussions with others without making it overly personal. Have a teachable spirit. Keep first things first and second things second. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, knowledge without love puffs up and is off-putting. But love, love builds up and love knows how to use knowledge to wisely and humbly use knowledge in order to build up other believers and so my desire, and more importantly, the Lord's desire, is for Mark 13 to build you up, to encourage you in your walk with the Lord, 
strengthen you to live courageously and fruitfully as a Christian. Let Jesus' words, spoken in verse 2 and verses 5 through 37, let His words edify and fortify and beautify your life, your household, your fellowship within this church family, and your mission to the world. If His words don't do that for you, but instead only stir up a useless argument or unprofitable speculation, then you're not hearing His words properly. So, all all that, everything that I've just said, is just kind of laying the groundwork for the rest of this sermon and then the next two sermons. Lord willing, going to spend three Sundays in Mark 13. This one is introductory, okay? Now, I want to do three things in the rest of this sermon. I'll tell you what they are right now. First, I'm going to tell you my basic viewpoint of Mark chapter 13. Second, I'm going to tell you some of the reasons why I hold that viewpoint. And then third, I want to press home one of the very important applications that flows out of this passage. Then next week, Lord willing, we'll do a careful walkthrough of verses 1 to 31, and the week after that, verses 32 to 37. So, here's my basic viewpoint of Mark chapter 13. Keep in mind, there are many differing viewpoints among faithful believers, but here's mine. In verses 1 through 30, Jesus is prophesying the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in the first century in the year 70 A.D. Verse 31 is a transitional verse, emphasizing the durability and permanence of Jesus' words. And finally, verses 32 to 37 look forward to Jesus' second coming at the end of history and our corresponding need to stay awake. Now, one obvious implication of my viewpoint is that I believe that Mark 13 has very little to say about the end times. Although verses 32 to 37 look forward to the end of history, it only paints a very general picture and does not give us a lot of specific information. The specific information that is found in verses 5 to 30 doesn't relate to the end times, in my view, but was fulfilled in the second half of the first century. Now, I might as well as tell you, because as soon as you look at the headings that translators put in your Bible or look at your study Bible notes, you're going to know this is true anyway. So I might as well tell you that my view is a minority view. Most people don't hold my view. Some people hold it, but but not many. Now, it's worth saying, just so you understand, many people do believe that verses 1 through 30 are primarily about the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century, but they usually separate out at least verses 24 to 27 and say that that's talking about Jesus' second coming. Few people believe that the whole set of verses 1 through 30 are about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, the fact that I hold a minority view in one sense doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not up here to take a poll. I, I take the Bible very seriously. It is God's Word. It must not be tampered with. What the Bible says, God says. Each passage must be carefully read in light of the whole Bible to stand in this pulpit 
and give forth erroneous teaching is a really big deal. At best, it brings confusion and imbalance, and at worst, it misrepresents God and misleads God's people. Who wants to do that? Confused, imbalanced, and or misled people are not apt to be unified in the truth, but rather go down the path of division. So I want you to understand that I value a unified flock feeding on the green pastures of God's gracious Word more than I value everyone agreeing with me on Mark 13. It's not a super high priority for me. And this is one of the reasons why I am taking time to emphasize the big picture, to put first things first, to keep the main thing the main thing. If we hold fast to the clear and glorious and weighty big picture of the gospel, then all of us can withstand some humble uncertainty and kind-hearted disagreement about Mark 13 or any other passage for that matter. So I'm not on a mission to get all of you to agree with me on a passage that is regarded as problematic, difficult, complex, and perplexing by Christian scholars who are more learned than I am and disagree among themselves. At the same time, I accept the responsibility to the responsibility to teach the whole Bible, including Mark 13, and to do it in an honorable and no-nonsense way. So that's what I intend to do. Everything I have said and will say, I commend to you for your nourishment and edification, and I only ask that you receive it in that manner as that which is designed to encourage you and build you up. So, having given you my perspective on Mark 13. Let me give you some reasons why I hold this view. There's, there's, I'm going to give you five reasons. There's probably more, but I'll give you five. Now, as you know, I care a great deal about the context of a passage. It, it, it's my conviction that in order to rightly understand a passage, it must be understood in light of the immediate context and it also must be understood in light of the whole Bible. Keep that in mind, and let me give you some reasons why I see Mark 13 the way I do. The first, is, the first reason is the context. The lead-up to Mark chapter 13 spotlights the temple and its demise. You can, if you have your Bible, you can you kind of scan through this with me. In Mark 11.11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. In verse 15 of chapter 11, it says, they came to Jerusalem and He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And then He spoke a word of judgment against the temple in verse 17 where He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. In verse 27, Jesus again and His disciples, they came again to Jerusalem, and as He was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to Him. And He goes on and He's, he's interacting with the religious leaders in the temple area. And, and one of the things that He's doing is He's He's bringing a preliminary word of judgment against the temple. You remember the, the fig tree illustration where sandwiched between his, his visit to an inspection of the temple and his word of judgment against the temple is his inspection and cursing of the fig tree, 
which is a way of saying the, judge, the, the judgment is upon the temple. And then in chapter 12, Jesus told that parable about the tenant farmers who were unfaithful, and those tenant farmers represented the, the corrupt religious leaders who were not living fruitfully before the Lord. And instead of receiving the vineyard owner's beloved son, they instead they killed him. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the religious leaders and their system in which the, the temple played such an important role? It says in chapter 12, verse 9, that the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Later in Mark 12, Jesus continues to teach in the temple. You can see that in verse 35, as Jesus taught in the temple. And then Mark 12 concludes with Jesus speaking a, a, a word of denunciation against the scribes, and then he's in the temple area observing this poor widow putting two coins into the treasury, and she says she gave more than all of those wealthy contributors. So chapter 11 begins with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and his inspection of the temple, and chapter 12 concludes with Jesus teaching his disciples in the temple, and then chapter 13 begins in the same place. Verse 1, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The disciples were impressed. By all accounts, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem was a marvel. Most of us are easily captivated by beautiful buildings. When I visited Germany in 1994, I was captivated by the wonderful and historic castles and cathedrals that I saw. There's nothing inherently wrong with a beautiful mansion or palace or castle or temple. The problem is when we are overly attached to an earthly treasure that is destined to, to turn into a pile of rubble. And so the disciples are impressed by the magnificence of the temple, but Jesus sees the temple in light of its sure and certain destruction. It says, verse 2, Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The message is clear. The physical temple in Jerusalem has no future. So if your well-being is tied to that physical temple and the religious, the, the religious association, of the religious system associated with it, then you're in real trouble. You must find something dura durable to build your life on. Where are you going to find something durable? Well, look at verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away. The temple's going to pass away, and then... Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Build your life on Jesus and his words, and you will not be disappointed. So in verse 2, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. Verses 1 to 2 then unfold into verses 3 and 4, because Jesus' statement in verse 2 prompts the question in verse 4. Okay? Look at verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, the temple still in view, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, 
tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? In light of the context of verses 1 to 3, in verse 4, these disciples are asking two basic questions. Number one, when will the temple be destroyed? And number two, what is the sign that the destruction of the temple is about to take place? Now, as far as I can see, Jesus' answer beginning in verse 5 and running through verse 30 is His answer to their question. And, and that's, this is the second reason why I believe that Mark 13, 1 through 30 is about the destruction of the temple in the first century, because that's what the question is about. The question in verse 4 flows out of the context of the temple being under judgment in chapters 11 and 12 and chapter 13, verse 2, and Jesus' answer corresponds to the question presented to Him. So, here's a, here's a brief summary of verses 5 through 30, okay? Next week, we'll go into more detail. In verses 5 through 13, Jesus talks about a number of ordinary commonplace, though difficult, events that will take place before the temple is destroyed. When Jesus says, but the end is not yet, in verse 7, He is not referring to the end of history, but to the end of the temple or to the completion of the judgment against the temple, because that's the subject under consideration, and that is the question He's answering. Context determines how words are being used. Now, in verse 14, there is a critical event, the abomination of desolation, that signals that the time for the temple's destruction is drawing near. This critical event also introduces a time of intense tribulation that runs through verse 23. So, verses 5 to 13 might be summarized as the beginning of birth pains. Verse 8, see that? The beginning of birth pains. Then verses 14 to 23 might be summarized as great travail, encompassing the desolation, the abomination, the desolation, and the tribulation that we see there. After this great travail comes the climactic end of the temple in verses 24 to 27. The language of verses 24 to 27 draw heavily from the Old Testament, which we'll look at next week, and indicate, indicate decisive judgment against an ungodly people. When some people read verses 24 to 27, they automatically assume that it must be talking about Jesus' second coming. And I understand that. I understand why people would think that. But I think there's a better interpretation. And the reason is because the, the, the sequence of thought, this is, this is the, the third reason why I hold this view, is that I see verses 5 through 27 as presenting a unified thought building up to the climax. And it's interesting that people who believe that this all took place in the first century and people who believe that this is all going to take place at some future time both believe in that unity of thought that runs from verses 5 through 27. Then in verses 28 through 30, Jesus brings His answer to a fitting conclusion. In view of all that He has said in verses 5 to 27, He now says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. 
as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gate. Now, the phrase, He is near, can just as easily be translated, it is near, and context must determine which translation is most appropriate. Maybe we'll get into that next week. But regardless of that, Jesus' statement in verses 28 to 29 circles back to the original question that was asked of him about the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. Thus, Jesus says, when you see these things taking place, you know that he or it is near at the very gates. In other words, when you see the desolation and tribulation of verses 14 to 23 taking place, then you know that the decisive judgment of verses 24 to 27 is about to be carried out. Then comes verse 30. And this is the fourth and probably most important reason why I believe that verses 5 to 30 are all about the destruction of the temple in the first century. Jesus assigns a time frame to it. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All these things, running from verse 5 to verse 27, will take place when? Before this generation passes away. The phrase this generation refers to Jesus' contemporaries, the people who were alive when Jesus spoke these things around the year 30 A.D., in other words, some of the people who were alive at the time when Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple will still be alive when the temple is actually destroyed. And this leads to a fifth reason why I believe that verses 5 to 30 is about the destruction of the temple in the first century. Because it actually happened, just as he said. The terrible Jewish war against the Romans took place in the years 66 to 70 A.D., the generation alive in 30 A.D. had not yet passed away when the Romans decimated the city and the temple. So, since the context of Jesus' teaching and the question presented to Jesus and the interconnectedness and unity of verses 5 through 30 and the generation, the, this generation time marker that Jesus gives, and the actual historical outworking, because of those five reasons, which are tied to the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple just about 40 years after Jesus spoke those words, it seems to me that it is forced, unnatural, and too dependent on linguistic gymnastics to suppose that Jesus is talking about a time period that still lies in the future. Of course, when Jesus spoke these words, the destruction of the temple did lie in the future, but it, but it clearly lay in the short-term future before the current generation passed away. And as Jesus foretold, so it happened, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so with verses 30 and 31 functioning like punctuation, punctuation marks, after verses 1 to 29, I think that in verse 32, Jesus is looking beyond short-term history to that final day and that final hour when He will come at the end of history. So, two out of three. I've told you 
my viewpoint, and I've told you some reasons why I hold that viewpoint. Now, I want to conclude today's sermon by pressing home one of the most important applications. And this will really test you and test me to see what we're really all about. One of the fundamental mistakes that Christians can and do make when it comes to passages like Mark 13, regardless of their interpretation of it, is to focus predominantly on the historical information and to forget about the spiritual exhortations that Jesus gives. Now, the historical information is important, but it isn't the only thing going on in this passage. I want you to think about this sentence written by Walter Wessel and Mark Strauss. They said this, there are 19 imperatives in verses 5 to 37, thus making it abundantly clear that the discourse's main purpose is not to satisfy curiosity about the future, but to give practical, ethical teaching. I want you to ponder the significance of how Jesus answers His disciples' question. He'd been asked two questions. When will the temple be destroyed, and what will be the sign that it's about to be destroyed? If all He had wanted to do was give them information, He could have probably done that in two verses. Like, the temple will be destroyed before this generation passes away, and the sign that that's about to happen is that religious sacrilege and social tension and political instability will reach epic proportions. There, I've answered your question. Mere information. And we can be addicted to work in the information. But what does Jesus actually do? He says things like, See that no one leads you astray. Do not be alarmed. Be on your guard. Do not be anxious. You will be hated by all for my namesake. Do not believe false messiahs and false prophets. Be on your guard again. Be on your guard a third time. Keep awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Three times. Do you see? We will have the opportunity to reflect more on this in the next two sermons, but right now I want you to realize that Jesus is addressing one of the fundamental problems that we all face. All of, the, all of the right information in the world will do you no good if you are not spiritually alert. What should you do? Walk so closely to Jesus that you would never be duped by a false Messiah. Treasure His Word so deeply that you would never be duped by false prophets. Resolve to obey Jesus no matter what so that you can endure through times of great trial. Make your calling and election sure so that you can have that confidence that He will safeguard you and hold you fast as you sing. Pay attention to what happens in the aftermath of a sermon like this. Some people, this is not a bad thing, don't jump to conclusions here, some people will want to analyze and examine and re-examine and discuss and possibly argue the informational content of the sermon in relation to all kinds of views that are out there. I say, go ahead, it's worth doing, I've done it myself. Diligent study is important for every Christian. 
It's part of being a good student and testing all things. But here's the real question for all of us, you and me. In and through and beyond the informational content, will we let Mark chapter 13... What's that? It's a little static. Be on your guard. Will we let Mark chapter 13 drive us towards greater faithfulness, greater vigilance for the direction of our hearts, greater endurance in the face of suffering, and less alarm and less anxiety when trials bear down? Jesus taught us that the outwardly impressive but inwardly corrupt temple was destined for destruction, and so it happened. Blessed are those whose well-being was not tied to that man-made temple, but instead to the temple built without human hands, the crucified and risen Christ, who is the cornerstone of the true temple that will never end. Brothers and sisters, the world is passing away, along with its desires, 1 John 2.17. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And what is God's will? This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. 1 John 3, verses 23 to 24. So, brothers and sisters, trust Jesus. Love one another. Live in this big picture and keep the main thing the main thing and always be on your guard and stay awake. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to focus our hearts and minds in the right place. I pray that we would all be built up and strengthened by the words of our Lord, which shall never fail. I pray that we would be resolved to, to do your will, to trust Jesus, to love each other, to lose our lives for the sake of his gospel. Father, I pray that you would guard us from any number of unhealthy responses to this message. Draw us to you, to the text of Scripture, to your promises, to one another. Build us up by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.